Welcome back to the Evidence-Based Rheumatology Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Putman, and this is episode 38, Romosozumab for the Fracture Prevention in Women with Osteoporosis. I'm going to be talking about three randomized controlled trials today, starting with the phase two RCT in 2014 that compared romosozumab to a number of different therapies. I'll follow that with romosozumab against placebo and end with romosozumab against alendronate. It's a nice little spectrum of trials that I think explains why we were so excited about this drug and also why the FDA is a little concerned about it going forward. Now, before I get into the podcast, I have three brief notes to make. The first is that, as before, I'm trying to keep this podcast free. Uh, The only thing I ask from you is that you share it with friends. So if you're enjoying the podcast, please send it to someone you know. The second is that I'm rolling out a debate podcast with Dr. Dua, who's the program director at Northwestern. I'm really excited about it, but I'd love to hear your feedback. So send me a note on Twitter if you have any thoughts about the format or any particular topics you'd like to hear discussed. And last but not least, I've decided to roll out a short monologue before I talk about the papers themselves. I'm not going to do this every week, but if there's something in the news, I'd like to discuss it. The topics will all be evidence-based things, and I'll kind of give you my rundown for how I look at them. For this week, I have something I'd like to discuss. It's an abstract that was shared at the British Society of Rheumatology meeting that's occurring somewhere in Britain right now. What they showed was the comparison of ultrasound versus clinical diagnosis for giant cell arteritis. This is an important topic because ultrasound seems to be a very useful diagnostic modality, can save patients a biopsy given the right pretest probability and a positive finding. Now, my concerns is that prior data has shown that the specificity isn't as good as we'd like to think. This is especially true in America, where most of the time it's not a rheumatologist doing the ultrasound, but instead a technician who may or may not have training in this particular area. So what this group showed was a large retrospective look at the sensitivity and specificity of ultrasound versus clinical diagnosis. They report a specificity between 2014 and 2017 out of 652 patients of 98%. That sounds phenomenal, right? Here's my problem with that. The clinicians themselves were not blinded to the results of the ultrasound when calculating this specificity. This is a huge, huge problem. People get hung up on the specificity, but it's really pretty straightforward. It's just the true negative rate. It's true negatives divided by the true negatives plus the false positives. The crux of the matter here is that false positive group. If you're a physician who believes in ultrasound and a patient has a positive halo sign on ultrasound, you're going to assign them the diagnosis of giant cell arteritis. That means that in a case where physicians aren't blinded to the test itself, the number of false positives will essentially go down to zero. Anyone who tests positive will be considered positive, and therefore, the only positives will all be true positives. For this reason, I put almost no stock whatsoever in a study that reports a specificity if the physicians themselves were not blinded to the test. Let me know what you think about these vignettes. With that, let's get back to the main part of this podcast, which is discussing romosozumab. The first trial I'd like to discuss was published in 2014 in the New England Journal of Medicine. It was entitled Romosozumab in Postmenopausal Women with Low Bone Mineral Density. For background, sclerostin is a regulator of bone formation. By inhibiting the Wnt pathway, sclerostin impedes osteoblast proliferation, so inhibiting an inhibitor would theoretically lead to more bone. Romosozumab is a humanized monoclonal anti-sclerostin antibody, so it makes sense that it may be helpful in patients with osteoporosis. So this first trial was a phase 2 multi-center international RCT. It was interesting because they had eight groups. Five of those were dose-finding for romosozumab. 
but one of them was alendronate, and one of them was teriparatide. It's not often you get to see three drugs like this pitted against each other, so I was pretty excited to read this one. Participants were ambulatory postmenopausal women, 55 to 85, who had low bone mineral density. That's a T-score of less than 2. These are pretty broad inclusion criteria. A very broad range of women with low bone mineral density could get into this study. Exclusion criteria were actually relatively prohibitive. You couldn't have had vertebral fractures, fragility fractures, hip or pelvis fractures after 50, etc. It was a relatively narrow group after you excluded all these other folks. Now, the primary endpoint was a percentage change from baseline and bone mineral density. What kind of an endpoint is that? That is a surrogate endpoint. Don't love surrogate endpoints, but for a phase 2 trial, it's not unreasonable, provided you follow it up with a phase 3 trial that assesses an outcome we care about, such as fracture risk. So what did these authors find? Well, in short, romosozumab worked really well. Placebo didn't improve bone mineral density at all. Patients kind of held serve. Alendronate improved bone mineral density by 4%. Teriparatide by 7%. 210 milligrams of romosozumab by 11%. It's a pretty impressive difference. They saw no serious events and no notable changes in other parameters that we would be concerned for. So overall, this was a pretty promising trial that got us all excited about the potential of romosozumab. When we get excited about a phase 2 trial, what do we do? We run a phase 3 trial. The next thing I'd like to talk about is the FRAME study. It was entitled Romosozumab Treatment in Postmenopausal Women with Osteoporosis. It was published in the New England Journal in 2016. Now, The FRAME study was an international, randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled, parallel group trial. It compared romosozumab in a blinded fashion to placebo, which I like. To get into the trial, you had to be a postmenopausal woman aged 55 to 90 with a T-score of negative 2.5 to negative 3.5 at the total hip or femoral neck. You can see the inclusion criteria are a little narrower here. The exclusion criteria were a history of hip fracture, any severe or more than two moderate vertebral fractures, or a history of metabolic bone disease and a number of other things that affect whether or not you can receive these medications. This is important. We're weeding out some of the people who have had really scary fractures at the beginning. Analysis was intention to treat. The rest of the procedures were all pretty reasonable. The co-primary endpoints were the cumulative incidence of new vertebral fracture at 12 and 24 months. Love that co-primary endpoint. It's a thing patients care about. 7,180 patients underwent randomization. The mean age was 71 years old. Bone mineral density was negative 2.72 on average. 18% had had a vertebral fracture before, and 22% had had a previous non-vertebral fracture. You can imagine these aren't hip fractures because those were excluded at the beginning. How well did it work? Well, the risk of new vertebral fracture was 73% lower with romosozumab than placebo. That sounds amazing, right? Well, if you've been listening to this podcast, you know that the re relative risk reduction is a very deceptive number. The actual event rate was 0.5% in the romosozumab group and 1.8% in the placebo group. If you can calculate an absolute risk reduction from that, which is 1.3. Not very impressive. Remember, the inverse of the absolute risk reduction is the number needed to treat, which in this case is 77. That tells us that we need to treat 77 patients with romosozumab to prevent one of their primary outcomes, which was new vertebral fracture. Now that was at 12 months. So what about 24 months? Well, the absolute risk reduction was 1.9%, or a number needed to treat of 53. So it's looking better, but you're still going to have to treat 53 patients with this medication before you prevent one vertebral fracture. On the bright side, adverse events were balanced between the groups, so there was no safety signal. There were atypical fractures and two episodes of osteonecrosis of the jaw in the romosozumab group, 
but it's hard to know what to make of that. This trial was not powered to detect that kind of safety signal. Unlike the first trial that was exciting, I would call this trial encouraging. It showed that romosozumab works better than nothing, which is not terribly surprising. It doesn't work that much better than nothing. The absolute risk reduction was small, and the number needed to treat was large. But you should remember that the actual event rate in this trial was relatively low. These patients on balance had not had prior hip fractures, and they had a bone mineral density that was better than negative 3.5. I wouldn't necessarily call this a healthy cohort, but it's certainly not the sickest cohort of patients with osteoporosis. It begs the question, what if we assessed romosozumab in a group of patients who were at a very high risk of fracture? Which is what they did next. So in October of 2017, in the New England Journal, the third trial assessing romosozumab was published. It was entitled, Romosozumab or Alendronate for Fracture Prevention in Women with Osteoporosis. I love the frame of this trial. They actually pitted romosozumab against alendronate. We know alendronate works for fracture prevention, so putting your fancy new drug against what I would consider the baseline standard of care is a nice way to run the trial. It really answers a useful clinical question for clinicians, which is, in patients with high risk of fracture, is romosozumab better than the alternatives? This was a phase three, multi-center, international, randomized, double-blind trial. All good things. Now, after people completed the double-blind trial, which was one year, everyone got open-label alendronate. Now, the inclusion criteria were a little bit complicated. You essentially had to have a bone mineral density worse than 2.5 and multiple moderate or severe vertebral fractures, or you had to have a bone mineral density worse than negative 2 and a total hip or femoral neck fracture or multiple severe vertebral fractures. The take-home here is that this was a very high-risk group of people who'd had bad fractures before. Primary endpoints of this trial were the cumulative incidence of new vertebral fractures at 24 months and the cumulative incidence of clinical fracture at the time of the primary analysis. What they really wanted to show here was that romosozumab not only helped vertebral fractures, which we care about a fair bit, but also helped scary fractures, such as hip fractures. The trial was powered to detect a 30% lower risk of clinical fracture, it was an intention to treat analysis, and all the rest of the design was pretty reasonable. Total of 4,093 patients underwent randomization, 77% completed the trial, which is not too bad. Of these patients, the average age was 74 years, so they're a little older than our prior cohort. 99% had had a previous osteoporotic fracture. That's a lot more. 96% had had a prevalent vertebral fracture. Again, this is a much sicker cohort. How well did it work? Well, jacking up the sickness of your cohort allows for a bigger benefit. Over a period of 24 months, there was a 48% lower risk of new vertebral fractures than alendronate alone. That number is less than the gaudy 73% we talked about before, but in absolute terms, it was much better. The absolute risk reduction was from 11.9% in the placebo group to 6.2% in the romosozumab group a 5.5% absolute risk reduction for a number needed to treat of 18. You needed to treat 18 patients at high risk of fracture with romosozumab instead of alendronate to prevent one new vertebral fracture. Not too bad, actually. That's starting to get into the realm of, this is something I would routinely do. Now, they also showed a difference in non-vertebral fractures, which is important. The rate was 10.6% in the placebo group versus 8.7% in the romosozumab group for an absolute risk reduction of one9 was barely significant, not a big difference, but it is something to note. Now all this is relatively promising, but let's get to the scary part. There is an imbalance in serious cardiovascular events. 
2.5% in romosozumab group versus 1.9% in the alendronate group for an absolute risk increase of 0.6%. That was a relatively small number. The number needed to treat assigned to that is 167. So if you treat 167 patients with romosozumab, you will likely cause one serious cardiovascular event. That's kind of scary to me. What kind of events were these? This is the real deal. This was MI and stroke. They didn't see any osteonecrosis or atypical femoral fractures, but again, this trial wasn't really powered to detect that. How do we bring this together? This is a doozy. Now, in early phase two trials, romosozumab looked better than teriparatide and alendronate. Remember, that was a surrogate outcome. In a large phase three trial that compared romosozumab to placebo, romosozumab looked better than nothing, but the number needed to treat was quite high. Even at 24 months, you need to treat 50 people to prevent one vertebral fracture, which isn't even the scariest kind of fracture. Last but not least, in a totally different group of patients who were at a very high risk of fracture and were likely at a higher risk of cardiovascular disease, romosozumab appeared to work better. Number needed to treat was 18. Honestly, if that were the only conclusion of this trial, I'd be willing to give romosozumab to patients at high risk of fracture over alendronate. But then we saw this cardiovascular signal. Overall, it was a relatively small increase, but it was an increase nonetheless in stroke and MI. These are things that people are very scared of, for good reason. A couple critiques of this whole thing. For one, this trial was not powered to detect a difference in cardiovascular events, and so we're not sure if that number is real. If we perhaps repeated this trial in a larger cohort, it's always possible that that would go away. Now, there is some bioplausibility for this. Sclerostin, which is the target of romosozumab, is expressed in bone, but it's also expressed in blood vessels. So you could imagine that romosozumab is acting in areas that we don't really want it to. Now, there was no signal in the frame trial towards cardiovascular events, but again, it's a different group. Maybe there's no signal because people in the frame cohort were actually a lot healthier. Last but not least, the authors float this idea that perhaps romosozumab is benign. And the real issue is that alendronate is cardioprotective. So when we pitted romosozumab against alendronate, you wound up seeing a benefit to alendronate, and romosozumab looked worse by comparison. I'm skeptical of this. We have a lot of data in alendronate, and there's not a ton that points towards a cardiovascular benefit. But in the Euloric CARES trial, I pointed to just this kind of rationalization for why I wasn't confident that Euloric had a cardiovascular cost. In the end, based on these three trials, I'm not going to be using very much romosozumab. In a relatively low-risk cohort, it didn't seem to work that much better than nothing. I imagine it's relatively similar to alendronate, zoledronic acid, prolia, or teriparatide, drugs that I feel more confident using. In a high-risk group where this drug may have carved out a niche for itself, there was a relatively substantial signal towards cardiovascular disease. I would certainly consider this in a patient who has failed bisphosphonates and demosmab and teriparatide. But that's a relatively small group of people. And when I talk to the patient about it, I would say, look, there's a real possibility, although it's small, that this will increase your risk of having a stroke or myocardial infarction. I imagine there's going to be a lot of patients who are saying, I think I'll take my risk of fracture instead. Now, I hope we wind up seeing a cardiovascular trial as we did with Euloric, the CARES trial. It would be really useful to do a large enough randomized controlled trial to see if this cardiovascular risk is a real thing. What we'll probably get is a lot of post-marketing surveillance studies. How is that a problem? Well, this cardiovascular thing is obviously a real concern, 
and people who are at high risk of cardiovascular disease are going to be selected against receiving the drug. So you can imagine that if we're comparing romosozumab against teriparatide in the future for cardiovascular disease, teriparatide group is probably going to be at higher risk of cardiovascular disease. And it makes it hard for me to believe any subsequent cohort studies based upon this data. In conclusion, I think the FDA was right to approve romosozumab, but I don't think I'll personally be using it very much. Let me know what you think about this episode. Thank you again for tuning in. As I said at the start of the episode, please share this podcast with friends. I'd also love it if you all follow me on Twitter. I'm at ebroom. The best way to find all of these things is to drop by my website, ebroom.com. Thanks again for listening and have a great week.